Pray with me one more time, and then we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm chapter 73 today. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word and how you communicate to us. We thank you that we have the ability to gather together today and to uh, see what your uh, word has to say to us, because when we open up your word, it's actually you speaking to us. Lord, we thank you that you know, or that, that um, uh, you have communicated what we're supposed to know about you. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I also thank you for the, the saints of the past. And as we sing uh, this, this beautiful ancient song that has been passed down to us, uh, Lord, we're reminded of the faithfulness of the saints that have gone before us, the, the faithfulness of those who uh, were oppressed and persecuted, uh, that this world was not kind to them. But, Lord, the gospel is, is that the next world is. And so, Lord, we thank you that those brothers and sisters are there now. Lord, I pray that as we uh, wrestle with Psalm 73, which is so timely with that, with that song that we just sang, Lord, of, of what do we do uh, when bad things happen to good people? What do we do when uh, good things happen for bad people? How do we face that? How do we navigate that? Lord, I pray that we would uh, rest in you, that we would rest in your goodness today, that we'd rest in your sovereignty and that uh, your gospel would truly be good news to us. Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Doug was uh, plugging through grad school, and he was doing it well. He was also trying to provide for a young family as he went through. Um, he was uh, exhausted, but he was keeping it all together. His kind of schedule was class in the morning, uh, study in the afternoon, and then work every night, uh, and then repeat to the next day over and over and over again. But that's how he and his wife were, were plugging through grad school, and maybe some of you have, have walked through something similar. When he was in his undergrad studies, he had waited tables. That was his job, and that kind of helped him that when he got into grad school, uh, he not only was waiting tables, but it helped him get into like a really fancy downtown restaurant, and so that's why, that's how he was kind of making his way through, and so he was working hard, and uh, he was, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those things where uh, bills were tight, but they were making it every month. Uh, his sweet wife missed him uh, and, and wanted more time with him, and she understood the sacrifices he was making, and she was thankful to have a husband uh, who was uh, so devoted to her and to their family. Um, uh, Doug was never late to his job. He, he always, uh, he never had like customers complain about the work that he was doing waiting tables. And so as time went by, he got the better shifts, he got the more profitable uh, sections, which just really helped their families pay the bills, and he was thankful uh, for the job. But then things began to change for him. He no longer was able to get the good shifts and, you know, the, the good sections, you know, they were always scheduling somebody else for those uh, sections. And, you know, it, it, it kind of started uh, affecting his family. And so uh, they weren't able to pay all the bills like they wanted to. And so they had really worked hard not to have credit card debt. All of a sudden they were having credit card debt. And so he finally went to the manager and said, hey, is there, you know, something I need to be doing differently here? And you know, I used to kind of have some of these shifts, and, and, and now I don't. And the manager kind of blew him off, and, uh, you know, he said, no, you're, you're doing fine. But he still didn't get the good shifts. And then he noticed one day that there was this, uh, there were particular uh, ladies who were newer to the restaurant. They started getting all the good shifts and all the good tables. And then he heard the rumor that the manager, even though he was married, was having affairs with multiple waitresses in the restaurants, and they happened to be the ones who were getting the best shifts. 
Now, obviously, this bothered Doug, as it would any of us, and so uh, he finally went to the manager and confronted him about it. And the manager's reply was, if you pull this again and confront me about this again, you're going to be fired. So he went home and prayed about it, talked to his wife, what should we do? So he ultimately concluded that he's going to go to the regional manager at the corporate office and share what's going on. The regional manager's response was, hey, we've kind of heard the rumors. Uh, you don't have any proof of it. But at the end of the day, this is a good manager in the sense that it's profitable. This, this restaurant was just barely making it until he came in. Now it's profitable, so not my problem. So he goes back, and, uh, and once uh, his manager at the restaurant heard what Doug did, he was immediately fired. So a couple of days later, he's sitting there with all the bills laid out on the table, wondering how he's going to pay for these bills, and he had some good questions. Why do bad things happen to good people, and yet good things happen to bad people? Why did Doug get fired, even though he was doing a good job? He, he was simply trying to take care of his family, and why did the manager get away with cheating on his wife as well as keep his job? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? Listen, Psalm 73 is important because at some point in your life, you're going to ask those type of questions, right? Like at some point in your life, you're going to personally, you know, face something like that. Is why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? You're going to have to wrestle with that in some way. And maybe it's the unethical guy in your office ends up advancing. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you're going to struggle with loneliness, even though you're trying to faithfully walk with the Lord. But then, you know, you, you see uh, this girl that is in your class and she's not faithfully walking with the Lord. In fact, she's kind of mean to people behind their backs, yet she seems to have all the friends. Maybe the other side always seems to be cheating, yet always seems to be winning. Now, the problem with all those scenarios is if you don't walk through that uh, correctly, you're going to end up like a comic book villain. Like, if you think about it, every comic book villain becomes a villain because of these scenarios, right? Like, if you think about all those guys, it starts with something like that. Yeah, 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 you were treated poorly in something, but the way you responded to it, you know, led to Lex Luthor or whomever, right? You know, so you're on the path to becoming a comic book villain unless you can face your bitterness in the correct way. We all struggle with bitterness when it seems like unrighteous people experience blessing while righteous people experience cursing or so it seems so what psalm 73 is going to do is is it's going to walk us through this struggle over bitterness over these issues but more importantly it's going to teach us uh, what we're supposed to do when that bitterness begins to set within us this is a long psalm so we're going to break it into parts kind of six different parts and let's start with the struggle in verses one to three follow along as i read psalm 73 verses one to three Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, if you know Psalm 72, the one that is right before this, it's kind of this high, I mean, it's a real celebratory psalm. It ends what is called the, the second book of the Psalms. And it's this great example of God's covenant, faithful love to his people. And it's a celebration of that. So it's this glorious, uh, almost this idealized view of what the world is supposed to be. And then you have Psalm 73. 
And it's almost like, you know, this this ideal vision of how things should be come up against reality. And you're dealing with this psalmist who's very unsettled. He's very confused on what's going on. And listen, do these type of scenarios happen today? Well, of course they do, right? Like we have these spiritual highs when we see God in all his glory and we just taste the heavenly gifts and there are these amazing uh, moments that we have and then we turn around and then we have these massive crises of faith. That, that can, we can have those types of swings, right? Like we can have these moments where like maybe we launch a new business and, and we've been praying about it. Maybe we feel the Lord calling us to it and we brought our friends into this and, and we just step out in great faith on something and then the whole thing kind of blows up in our face. Like we can have these moments where God really lays somebody on our heart to share the gospel with and we kind of gear up for it and we kind of think through how to talk about it and you know we run those conversations in our mind of how I can kind of you know get this conversation the scenario over to Jesus and then we you know we muster up the courage to go talk to them we have our friends pray for it we sit down and talk to them and like it just goes really sideways quick and we like lose the friendship over it like we can have these major swings that happen this is what's going on here the, the psalmist is very unsettled You see, he sees the way reality should be, but it's not that way. And in fact, the confusion of all this actually leads to, how do you categorize Psalm 73? Like scholars are all over the map. Is this a psalm of lament? Is this a psalm of wisdom? Is this like a psalm about like practical teaching? Is this just a personal testimony? I mean, there's confusion about what's going on here because he is so confused. And Christians can experience unsettling seasons in their faith. Christians can even experience crises of faith, right? Like we can all be here. These seasons can happen even when we see, uh, when we see pious, faithful people struggle, while at the same time we see uh, the wicked people just seem to kind of cruise along. Like we can all be there. All of that can still happen today. But I'm maybe getting ahead of ourselves on what this psalm is actually about because he starts with this wonderful creedal statement. Like in some ways, this first verse is like this great summary of what the Old Testament is all supposed to be about. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure at heart. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings cursing. This is a great summary of the entirety of the Old Testament. If we are pure in heart, then God will be good to us. Keep the law and God will bless us. This is the Old Testament. But then all of a sudden in verse 2, we have this uh, this contrasting word that starts in, in verse 2, and there's this great contrast. That's the creed that we believe, and then this is the reality that the psalmist is experiencing. He says in 2 and 3, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the psalmist is struggling because even though he is living faithfully according to this biblical creed, he's not prospering. And as he looks out at people who are not living faithfully, they seem to be prospering. Where is God in all of this? So he confessed in verse 2 that, quote, he almost stumbled and he, quote, nearly slipped. This means that he was walking down this faithful path and, and, and he was embracing, holding fast to his confession. And this confession gave him this firm footing. But then all of a sudden, things seem to be operating outside of this confession. And, it, and it's like his feet have you know, just been pulled out from under him. He slipped. He, he's almost lost his faith over this. Now let's get a little more specific about the problem. What caused him to slip? Let's look at verses 4 to 15. And what we're going to see in here is uh, that he knows God to be righteous and just, 
who promises to reward the faithful. Uh, however, he looks around and he sees the unfaithful going unpunished. And, and, and there's kind of four different categories of these next uh, verses up to 15. First, we're going to see that the wicked people who are healthy, they, they were healthy on the outside. So he talks about their blessing on the outside. Then he kind of goes inside in verses 6 and 7, and he talks about the pride inside their heart. And then uh, in, in verse 8 and 9, you know, out of that heart, they're now spewing wicked words. And then we see the reality of God's people being bewildered by all of this, starting in verse 10. Look, look at 4 and 5 with me. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in, in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So the psalmist looks around and everybody's struggling physically, except for these wicked people. Like, like they're just cruising along and seem to be you know, healthy on the outside, even though they're evil. So, the, so they seem to be getting away with their sinfulness. You see, the, the unfaithful ones who, who reject God, God's ways, they seem fat and happy. They seem to be doing great in all of this. And that just seems to go right against God's covenant promises. And, and so he's uh, be, be becoming resentful and he's becoming bitter. He, he's like the, uh, uh, the man in Ecclesiastes who looks out and says, uh, there, is a, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who pro prolongs his life in his evil doing. So the psalmist is looking at all this and he's saying, what's the point? Like, why am I walking faithfully here when all these evildoers just seem to be getting away with this? Like, what's the point in all of this? And listen, you know, if you haven't experienced this in your life, you're going to, right? Like, this evil can happen today. Like, the evil can get away with it today. Men, this touches you in, in different ways probably too. But ladies, if you've ever, like, been abused by a man and then he got away with it, like, he did not have to face his justice for that, you know what he's talking about, right? Like, that's going on here. The evil are getting away with their evil. Six and seven. Therefore, pride is their necklace, this thing that they wear on outside of them with great pride. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. So not only has God punished them for their, is not punishing them for what they're doing on the outside, he, he goes inside and looks at the condition of their heart, and it's just filled with this pride. It's filled with this sinful pride. And he looks at that, and even that is going unpunished. Uh, the folly and the sinfulness of the, and the wickedness of their heart is just overflowing. This reminds us of Proverbs sixteen eighteen. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. However, when the psalmist looks out at those who have this sparkling pride that's on the outside, he's wondering, okay, where's the destruction? Where's the fall? Is, is Proverbs 16 even true? So he sees more pride and more swelling and more fatness, and this reality is becoming embittering. All right, verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. So, so again, these prideful hearts produce this fruit, this fruit of wicked words. These wicked words are now flowing out of them. The things that they're saying are against God. And of course, Jesus taught about this in Matthew 15, where he said, where he talked about, you know, the things that come out of your mouth, that's, the, that's a reflection of the condition of your heart. And so he knows that what's going on on inside of them is wicked because of the words that's coming out of, the, out of these people. Another way of saying this is these people are utterly corrupt. 
on the inside and on the outside. These people have wicked hearts, and it's resulting in wicked words. And again, where is the justice? Where is the justice for those who have yelled and belittled with their words? Where's the justice for the people who have used their words to lie about other people? Where's the justice uh, for the people who have used their words to slander other people? You see, when we see that, we're tempted not to believe all this, right? Like we're saying, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see these covenant promises. I read what the Bible says, but I'm facing a different reality. And I'm becoming bitter in my heart because of it. All right, 10 to 15. Therefore, his people turn back to them. And find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase their their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the, the generation of your children." What's going on in verses 10 and 11 is that they explain that these wicked people are getting away with their evil, right? So and it's causing uh, the people of God, the faithful ones, to turn back to the wicked ones and say, well, well maybe this is the best path. And then they start questioning God. So, so they're saying, well, maybe God isn't truly sovereign. Maybe God isn't truly just. Maybe God doesn't really care. Like maybe the reason why God's not acting is because it's foolish to follow God. Like, maybe he's not going to make all these things right. You see, the wicked seem at ease while we are stressed out. The, the evil have become wealthier than we are, and we're struggling to pay our bills. It seems like it's all vanity and, and futile to follow the Lord. It seems like it's all a waste of time to keep our hands clean, if you will. He's saying, does perseverance really lead to joy? The psalmist is being pretty brutally honest here, isn't he? And listen, there's a great place for that, right? to be brutally honest about the things that we're experiencing. And again, these types of thoughts and these perceptions and these questions are leading him to slip a bit, right? Going back to that image. So what he's doing here is he looks around and he uh, sees the injustice and, and he's questioning it all. And again, all of this can happen today. We can, we can look around and see injustice and say, where is this just God? We can look around and see the chaos, what seems to be chaos in the world, and we can say, where's this God who is supposedly in control of all things? What's the solution to our problem of becoming bitter in that moment? God, you promise to uphold all things by the righteousness of your hand. It doesn't seem like it. We're becoming bitter because of it. What do we do with that bitterness when we, are, when we look around and we see the unrighteous experience blessing? Well, here's the solution in verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now listen, his authenticity continues here, right? This is a weary task. Why is this weary? The reason why this is weary is, is that he, in his own human strength and in his own human reasoning, is trying to put all these pieces together. And that's weary, isn't it? Like when you've been there, how do I make sense of this? This is an exhausting thing. Now listen, that's not to say we don't do it. it it's just to acknowledge that this is an exhausting work, however it is a necessary work. But that's not the good news of this passage. The good news of this passage is not, hey, go figure it out when you you walk through this. The good news of this passage is there's someone that this is not weary work for. 
This isn't weary work for God. He knows the answer to all of this. He, he, he knows all of this. For God, this is not a wearisome task. And because of that, that's why in verse 17, the solution is, is go into the sanctuary. Go into to God's presence. This is a typical pattern in the book of Psalms, where all of a sudden there's this shift in the psalm. So we've been looking at all the problems. And then all of a sudden in verse 17, there's this shift. There's this shift from the problem to the solution, right? The solution is, is to go into the sanctuary. This is where we're going to find all of our hope. This is where we're going to find our solution. This is where we're going to find our salvation is when we go into the sanctuary of God, verse 17, and there we'll find understanding and there we'll find relief from our weariness. The solution to the psalmist and bitter thoughts is the sanctuary of God. If he does not go into the sanctuary, his perspective is going to kill his soul. Again, think of those comic book villains. So when something like that happens to you, you there, there's a real potential for you to go down that path. You can go down that path or you can go into the sanctuary of the Lord. He's not, uh, uh, this psalmist is not wrong in diagnosing the problem, is he? He's not wrong in seeing the wickedness around him. He, he's right. The wickedness are getting away with their sin. However, it's not good news to try and make sense of it in your own strength. The solution there is not you figuring out. The solution there, again, is to go into the sanctuary. It's to go into God's presence and get on your knees in prayer. We mentioned last week, we kind of touched on this uh, sanctuary as being the dwelling of God. Most likely when the psalmist wrote this, this is probably still time of, the time of the tabernacle, which is kind of this mobile temple that they moved around. Now, at this time, it, it's probably sitting on the temple mount, but it had this holy of holies that you would go into. And it was there, this sanctuary where God dwelled. It was the dwelling of God. What he's talking about here is going into the presence of God. The, the point of verse six, uh, 17 for us is to see that when we see the injustice around us and when it becomes weary to us, we're to go to God for the, for the solution. Solution, going to him is always the answer in those moments. Are you with me? Amen. He's the solution. This is maybe a silly illustration, but years ago during the first year of our church, we, we lacked something. And it, it wasn't major. It didn't even matter what it was. Well, it, it was a drum. We, we, needed, we, 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 needed, we needed some more drummers, okay? And you think, well, why is that so important? I, it's not, okay? But it was bothering me. We needed drummers. And so, you know, again, it wasn't the end of the world, you know, whatever. But I was complaining about it to a friend. And so my wiser, older friend asked, hey, have you prayed for it? <laughs> no, was my answer. Now, listen, here's why I said no. I, I didn't think it was that important. Now, it was important enough to complain about it, but not important enough to take it to the Lord. Pretty convicting, right? So we prayed for a drummer, and within like six months, we had three drummers, uh, just for the record, if you're counting. But that's a, that's a great point, isn't it? These problems that we face, are you praying about it? Are you going into the presence of God with it? Are, are, are you taking it to Him? Are you looking to Him for the solution? You see, going into the sanctuary helps us see the truth about how God is good. God is our provider. God's in control. God is good, and he's with us. Look with me at 18, uh, 19, 20, uh, up to 22. This is the truth about them. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul is embittered, when I, when I was pricked in heart, 
I, I was brutish and arrogant and ignorant, and I was like a beast towards you. You see, the psalmist is believing some untruths, isn't he? That's why he's in the state that he is, is he's believing some untruths, and now he's getting some truths right here. You see, some of the truths are here, it's, see, he's falsely believed that they were getting away with their wickedness. They weren't getting away with it. He, he, that's what it seemed like to him. It wasn't in his timing, but he, but he falsely believed that they were getting away with it. He also, second, falsely believed that God was not going to do anything about it. Maybe it wasn't in his timing, but it was going to be in God's timing. Third, he falsely believed that God didn't care. God cares about injustice. God cares about these things that happen to you or happen to the ones you love. He, he's, he falsely believed that God was not just. He falsely believed that God was not in control. And, and the truth about those wicked people is that God had set them on slippery rocks. It seemed like they were on a firm foundation, but they were on slippery rocks. You, you ever skipped across slippery rocks? What happens? Well, when you fall, it happens fast, right? Like, that's what's going on here. They're going to fall. They're going to be held accountable, okay? And, and, and those people who mock God, their feet, their feet are not on, on firm ground. And when they fall, it's going to be sudden. When they fall, it's going to be surprising, and it's going to be devastating. Praise God that the faithful psalmist is not going to have to experience uh, that, that uh, justice of God, right? Like, listen, if you're walking through something hard, I get it. Stay faithful, you're not going to have to be in this scenario. You're not going to be the guy who's not walking faithfully with the Lord. You think everything's going smooth, and then all of a sudden, boom, the justice of God. Like, you're not, you're not going to have to face that. You see, the truth is, is that it might seem like God is sleeping through all this injustice. Oh, but when the lion is roused, that's what he's getting at. The lion will be roused. His inaction is just for a moment. There's a day coming for all these things. And this is where our faith and trust in Him uh, uh, come into play. Do, do we think that God is this roaring lion? Do, do we belittle Him as a kitty cat and think He's not in control and not righteous and not strong? Or is He this roaring lion that we fear? Listen, He's not roaring yet, but we believe that He's going to roar. The truth about the wicked in our world is not that they are getting away with it, it or that God doesn't care or that God is not in control. The truth is, is that we are, is that they are skipping over slippery rocks. And the truth is, is that when they fall, it's going to be sudden and it's going to be devastating. The truth is, is that when that sleeping uh, lion awakes, he is going to hold the wicked accountable. Brothers and sisters, how now shall we live with this? Well, hear me, not with bitterness. We're, we're not to become bitter over the injustice around us. We're to frame it in, in the gospel and these promises of God. We're to be faithfully content knowing that King Jesus will set all things right. God's justice is coming. It's sure and it's swift. When we see injustice around us, there should be a righteous indignation in us. It, it should stir things within us. And listen, we should do all that we can to make this world as much like the kingdom of God as we possibly can, okay? But we should also not give in to the bitterness that comes, right? Listen, this world is not going to be the perfect kingdom, right? And as we bump into those things, that's not to lead us to bitterness. We're not to become bitter over the things that we can't change, but rather we're to be faithfully content knowing that Jesus can fix it and that he will fix it. That's the good news of this passage. You see, it is a brutish thing. It's a childish thing to become bitter 
is what he's saying here in this, in this section of verses. This is especially true regarding those things that we can't fix. Like, what good does it do us to become bitter? What, what, how does that serve us in any way? Does it help the people around us? Does it make things more right? It doesn't. It doesn't serve us in any way. Bitterness doesn't bring life. Bitterness always kills our soul. It, it, it does you no good to hold on to that anger over things that only Jesus can fix. Are you with me? In fact, this final line of verse uh, 22 says, I was like a beast towards you. What does that mean? You see, that kind of bitterness is actually an offense against God. Like, listen, this is my sermon, okay? Y'all are just here joining me, okay? I've, I've, I've had seasons of bitterness. And, and here's the, this is the most convicting thing in here for me. That bitterness, it's actually an offense against God himself. The reason why it's an offense against God is, is because a bitter person lacks faith in God. The bitter person roars at God uh, like he's the lion. You're wrong to let this happen. You're not really in control. You're not good like you said you are. You're a liar, in fact. You see how bitterness is actually an offense against God? Rather, the one who goes into the sanctuary prays, the self-indulgent have no staying power because King Jesus is coming. Is that your prayer in that moment? See, that's the prayer of faithfulness. That's what comes when you go into the presence of God. You're good and you're in control. You're going to fix all of this. You see, when we go into uh, the presence of God, we find, uh, we find the solutions. We experience the joy of knowing that God is ultimately in control. We go back to these old gospel truths that are our hope. All right, two more sections, 23 to 26. This is the truth about us. That was the truth about them, but this is the truth about us. 23 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me in glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. But my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Okay, where have we been here? The psalmist has seen all this injustice in life. Bad things have happened to good people. Good things have happened to bad people. He stewed over this reality to the point that it's become very embittering to him. And again, he sounds like a normal human being. Let's be clear here, okay, before we judge him too much. We've all been there. And then he did what he should do. He went to God for the solution. He goes uh, into the presence of God. That's where he looks. He, he looks to God to, to fix this. And the experience took him back to some old gospel truths. God is in control. God is good. God is going to fix the injustices in this world. Even the particular injustices that he's experiencing, that spiritual uh, reality has led him then to confess his bitterness. He's held on to it. He's fostered it. And he's done it in his mind because this is right and good. But now he's gone into the presence of God. He's faced these things, and he's been forced to remember things. And so he's now confessing his bitterness. But now in verses 23 and 20, uh, through, uh, through 26, we see some truths about us when we embrace a biblical spirituality. And it teaches us some things. It, it reminds us uh, to confess our sins, and it, and it helps us see where we're not trusting God. But it reminds us of some other things. We're reminded that God is always with us. He, he's always holding our hand, if you will. 
You remember Jesus' promise in John 15 that he would send us a helper. We're reminded that we have this helper with us. And to get more specific, we're reminded that he helps us by guiding us. So Jesus talks about in John 16 that this helper will, quote, guide us into all truth. And then the psalmist, by going into God's presence, he's also reminded uh, that the end, about the end result. The really good news is that not only do we have a helper in this world, but we have the promise of help eternal. <laughs> we have this promise of this eternal hereafter. So Jesus' spirit is not only our, our helper, he's not only our guide here, but he's our seal of assurance in the hereafter. All that comes from going back into God's presence and seeing all these injustices according to the gospel. What glorious gospel truths, amen? Like that's the good news when we're there. There's really good news when we're there. Do you know where we're left? We're left here in verse 25. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What good news? What good news that we have something better than this world has to offer? or better than this world can take away from us. They can't take that away from us. So he's going to make all things right. That means the injustice we see and experience is not how things are always going to be. We have real hope. Further, and because of that, we also don't have to slide into bitterness. When these injustices happen, when they happen to us, we don't have to go into bitterness because we have something better than whatever, than whatever that is. We can still sing, Swing low, sweet chariot. Even when you're going through that type of oppression. And the reason is, is that we have someone that we can trust in. All of that truth, all of those great glorious truths, they're not platitudes. They're all wrapped up into the person of Jesus. Jesus brings about all of that, amen? They're not just baseless platitudes, but they're based on the person of Christ. This is the hope in those moments. So as a result of tasting him as living water, we can conclude that we desire nothing more than to be with him alone. Finally, when we fail and we will, he is our portion. What a great word at the end there. He is our portion. When we fail, he's still there pouring out living water upon us. He's still with us. Okay, look at his concluding confession. Verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I, that I may tell of all your works. So after all the twists and turns, after all the thinking and the experiences, this is where the psalmist lands. This is where he lands. This is his closing confession, if you will. And notice, he's moved from embitterment to confessionalism. That's the move that we're supposed to make in those moments. That's the good news, is that we have a confession to hold on to. In the end, God will put an end to all the wicked and the unfaithful. But in the end, it it is good to be close to God because He is our refuge, resulting in us joyously worshiping Him forever. So if you're questioning, should I still be faithful in all this? The answer is yes, brothers and sisters. In spite of all the injustice we see in this life, it is good to be near God. We have something better than the world has to offer. We have something better than the world can take away from us. We can be near God. Notice the evolution of the psalmist's thinking and his belief. 
Hear me, this, this is about to get pretty convicting, I think. At least it is to me. But look, look at the good that's talked about in verses 1 to 3. And then compare that or contrast that with the good that he's talking about here at the end. Like when you look up at verses 1 to 3, what is the good there? You see, he, had, um, he sees people materially prospering. And he thinks, that the, he thinks that that's bad because the good in his eyes is material prosperity. That's the good in verses 1 to 3. That's the thing that he wants, and he's not getting it, and so he's mad at God over it. People that are unfaithful are getting that, and so he's then mad at God over it. Compare that. In other words, money equals good in his eyes in verses 1 to 3. So if he had a lot of money, then he was doing good. If he didn't have a lot of money, then he was not doing good. Therefore, God is not good because money is actually what is good in verses 1 to 3, right? Now, that's the error right there. This, again, this is where this gets pretty convicting. But, but compare that with verses 27 and 28. What is the good in verses 27 and 28? Nearness to God. That's the good. You see, Psalm 73 is a call to move from bitterness to nearness to God. In order to make that move, we likely uh, uh, need to do some heart work. We, we need to, to think and really believe about, okay, what is good to me? It, well, we need to confess something. You see, if money is your ultimate good, i.e. the thing that you worship, when you don't have it, you're going to become embittered. Okay? So if a, if a lot of friends or a perfect family or being the pastor of a large church versus a small church or, or to be successful in business, if all those things are your ultimate good, when you don't have them, you're going to become embitteredness. But, but what a futile and what a sad way to live life. Amen? That is not satisfying if you've been there. Young people, if you're still exploring which way to go, talk to some gray hairs around here. That's a sad way to live life. That's a futile way to live life. So hear me, with as much pastoral desperation and love that I can muster, please hear what I'm about to say. Nearness to God is the ultimate good. It doesn't matter how much health you have or don't have, how much money you have or don't have, how many friends you have or don't have nearness to God is the ultimate good. None of these things I mentioned on that list are necessarily bad things, but when they're taken away, you still have something better. You still have something better. When you feel, feel bitterness hardened in your heart, draw near to God because He is better. Okay, what are the takeaways here? There's three or four. Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Friends, if you're struggling with bitterness, really what you're struggling with is two masters. You're loving the wrong master, and it's been taken away from you, and you've grown bitter. You're believing something that you don't have as your ultimate good instead of believing that nearness to God is your ultimate good. Because if that's what you believe, even to the degree of living that way, you're never going to become bitter. Psalm 73 is calling you to believe that nearness to God is better than whatever is making you bitter. This is why, number two, in James 4, verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The promise here in James 4, 8 is that if we draw near to Him, He's going to draw near to us. So when you go into that sanctuary, he's going to be there waiting for you. That's the great hope of this passage. Now listen, James 4 is really helpful here because it reminds us about cleansing your hands. 
Like, listen, you don't go into God's presence with dirty hands, right? Like, you, are, are there things that you need to confess before you draw near to Him? Are there some things that you need to deal with? Are there things that you're loving more than him that is causing you to become bitter? Are there things that you're trying to control instead of give over to the Lord? Turn those things over to him and turn to him. He promises to be there for you. Let me give you one more verse. Second Chronicles, Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear uh, from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You see, when we move from bitterness to this gospel confession, he promises to forgive and he promises to heal. This is how we get closer to God. This is how we get close to him. Are you close to him today? That's the great question we all need to be asking. Now, that's maybe sort of a tricky question today, right? Because some of us have had this saving experience with God and, and we have uh, maybe loved other things in subtle ways more than God, and we become bitter when those things have been taken away from us. However, and that's caused us to be further away from God. So are you close to God today? Listen, that might be a call to deal with some of these things that you're loving more than God. But, but there's another category of people, when I ask that question, are you close to God? You might have to honestly say, listen, I've never really started a relationship with him. Yeah, I'm not close to him because I, I, I don't even even know him and listen if that's the case for you today this is a call to to know him today he's in that sanctuary and wants to know you and listen after every one of our church services we have pastors and elders in the back they want to talk to you they want to pray for you they're here for you if that's the category you're in when i ask that question are you close to god and you say "I, i don't even know him listen slip to the back and let us pray for you and answer questions for you today you see going back to our our story of Doug, like the psalmist, Doug had gone through a season of bitterness. The world told him to, to get an education in order to be successful. And he, he worked really hard through his undergrad degree and then in grad school. He loved his wife, and she just found out she was pregnant. And so he was working hard to take care of them. And listen, he had kind of taken pride in the fact that he had, he had really prioritized the right things in his mind. He was trying to love his family. He, he was trying to provide for his family. You know, he, he kind of took pride in the fact that they were getting through all this without a lot of debt. And all, all that, uh, because of all those things, uh, you know, he, he had become embarrassed and even feeling shameful over the fact that he had lost his job. And even when he wrestled with some of those things, even though he kind of walked through it and said, okay, I think I did this for the right reason. I think I did this in the right way. It still went sideways. He, he, he still just got mad and even madder at, at his manager over all that had happened to him. He did it the right way for the right reasons, okay? And he was left with this. He was left with being embarrassed and, and feeling ashamed. Really, Doug was becoming embittered. It was, uh, it was distracting him from his schoolwork. It was hardening his heart towards his wife. He noticed that he was becoming harsher with her. They found out that when they were pregnant, and, and even though his wife was thrilled about it, you know what his first thought was? How are we going to pay for this? <laughs> you know, that, that, that's where his heart and his mind was. And again, all of that just fed that bitterness, it fed that anger towards his boss. Doug's wife encouraged him to share his struggle with some of uh, the men in the men's group at church. And when the, like his little men's group, like a lot of our groups do, when it kind of goes around for prayer requests, his prayer request was, you know, fine, you know. But his wife said, listen, don't give the fine answer. Like, like really share what's going on. You know, share, you know, the, these pressures that you're, you're feeling. Share with these guys what's going on. 
after the Bible study, one of the older guys grabbed me and said, hey, can I, can I go buy you lunch? So, so they went to lunch, and in this kind of real uh, older Barnabas-type way, th- this man just listened to Doug share. He, he, he validated, man, you're right, that's wrong. Man, man you're right, that, that's hard, and that, that, that's affecting your family. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're, you're right on these things. He, he validated the wrongness of the situation. He, he validated uh, that, that Doug had done a good job. In fact, he even commended Doug for, for working so hard and trying to provide for his family. And he went so hard that this older guy said to this younger guy, I want you to know that I'm proud of you. You're doing this the right way. He, he saw the impressiveness of what he was doing. And as a result, Doug felt very safe with this older Christian. And then he told Doug that a hard and bitter heart is like a check engine light going off. He said, listen, there's nothing wrong with a, with a check engine light. In fact, it's very helpful. What does a check engine light do? It's an indication of something else going wrong. He's saying, listen, these feelings that you have, they're an indication that there's something deeper going on. He, he was worried that if Doug did not draw closer to the Lord, then, then this issue had the real potential to tear apart his soul. And then there were really hard consequences that came from that. So he challenged Doug to move from bitterness to confessionalism. You see, this older man shared about a wrong that had happened to him and how it led to his bitterness and, and how he had to, to deal with it. And the short of his experience was that seeing his, uh, 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 seeing his bitterness is really what uh, led to this solution of the sanctuary. We're supposed to draw near to him when we're there. So by going into the presence of God with his struggle, it enabled him to see that uh, the, uh, with fresh eyes these old gospel truths. This was the counsel this brother gave this young man. He was able to move from bitterness to confessionalism. Let me close with 27 and 28 again. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put, on, you, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and how you communicate to us. Lord, we thank you that um, all things will be made right when you choose to set them that way. We thank you that the king is returning. We thank you that the lion will roar again. We thank you that all will be made right in the end. Lord, give us perseverance in the in-between times. Lord, give us the grace to walk faithfully with you even when it's hard. Lord, help us to be a people who faithfully draw near to you in the hard seasons so that we can experience the joy of seeing you as good. Lord, we need that refreshment to our soul to just be in your presence. So Lord, if there's anyone here that's not close to you, maybe they're a Christian and and they're just not uh, believing the right things, seeing things the right way, Lord, I pray they would come into your presence today. Lord, if there's one who's here today that, that they've never come into your presence, that's why they're not close to you pray that they would get that right today, knowing that you're there, you're ready to meet them. I pray that they would come to you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.